This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them." It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Ashley. Well, uh, this is fall in Orlando, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, My children have been, I was raised in the Midwest. My children have been raised in Southern California and now here, so they've never experienced winter. Uh, As I was thinking about this morning and driving here, uh, I was thinking about one high school baseball season when I was in high school, and we started early in the year, and this was a particularly wet and cold spring. And by spring, we started baseball in like late February, uh, practice and conditioning. And normally we'd be outside freezing cold, but it was so bad, we had to be inside in the gymnasium practicing. So we were taking ground balls on the hardwood floor and all types of things. I mean, we were, we were awesome and hardcore and dangerous. And as we were doing that, you know, there would be plenty of room in certain areas and then other areas would be cramped. And I was in a particularly cramped area where... Uh, we were hitting off the tee into a net, and I bent over to, to grab a ball, and, and a person stepped back to take a practice swing and hit me in the head with a bat. And I'm okay. Uh, I'll never be the same. Uh, however, I'm okay. I was alive, but it really rung my bell. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I don't think I lost consciousness, but maybe that means I did. If I can't remember, I'm not sure. But I remember it hurting, and I remember uh, going to the doctor And I remember two days later coming back, and the week was so cold, we were still in the gym. Now, I was a catcher, and so uh, when I came back, I was in another area with pitchers and catchers, and I was catching, but we were kind of close together. And somehow, from the moment of being in that tight space and getting hit in the head, and then now that moment being in a tight space, throwing a ball back to the pitcher, I froze, and I couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher, and it lasted all season. It benched me. Uh, I was on track to uh, be a varsity starter as a sophomore, and it benched me. 
Uh, I was so, it, it shook me so deeply that I actually had to come early to practice and stay late at practice and focus on the fundamentals of throwing, um, the, the elementary fundamentals of what it meant to throw the ball back to the pitcher. This is a bad thing. Even if you're not a baseball fan, you know this is a bad thing, right? How are you supposed to do this? And I went from having a pretty accurate and strong arm, but really good technique, to being horrible. Uh, so much so that I almost quit. It was so bad. It was so painful and stressful. Uh, now, of course, those elementary fundamentals of throwing the baseball that I learned when I was a kid, those were important. But I had lost sight of knowing what it was like to just think about where I wanted to throw the ball. I was so wrapped up in thinking about how to throw the ball. Now, for you, uh, you may not have had any experience close to this, but, but the principle of this, I actually experienced a lot in my life. And I think the Galatians were experiencing this. And this is the principle. When something, some experience shakes you to your core, it could be something traumatic. It could be a loss of relationship. It could be the loss of a job. It could be being passed over by a promotion. It could be failing when you're used to succeeding, right? For some of you, it actually could be succeeding when you're used to failing. You don't know what to do now that you have this responsibility that you've never had before, right? Something can happen to you and it shakes you to your core that you actually forget who you are. You actually forget your identity. And what happens to all of us when we find ourselves in those places is that we look for rules. When we're shaken to our core, we look, we say, tell me the bottom line, tell me what to do. You see, these Galatians are like you and I, or maybe I could say you and I are like the Galatians in this sense that when these false teachers came in and pulled the rug out from underneath them, tried to change their whole view of what it meant to be a Christian, they were shaken to their core and they asked themselves, who am I? And they begin to be very open to tell me what to do, which is why legalism took hold. You see, there have been times in my life where I've just thought it'd be so much easier if all I had to do, if I just knew that I just prayed five times a day in a certain direction and that took care of everything else, I'd be okay. There are times when I thought if someone would just look me in the eye and tell me who I am, tell me what to do, that everything would be okay. You see, when we're, sh when we're shaken to the core, we are ripe for legalism. And some of us who are legalistic, it's because you're insecure. And you don't know who you are, and so you put burdens and rules on other people because it will make you feel better. And we'll get to all of these things. But the principle is this, us, like the Galatians, when things happen in our lives that shake us so deeply, we're prone to run to rules and legalism because in those moments, it looks solid. It looks attractive. But Paul, Paul is perplexed, is the word he uses. Paul gets it, but he's perplexed. He's been talking for chapters about, I, I know, I know that they're telling you these things. Be circumcised, become a Jew. But I'm reminding you, I'm telling you, freedom in the gospel is Christ plus nothing. And he's continuing on in that teaching. And here, we're basically taking on all of chapter four today. But we'll see that Paul, the perplexed pastor, is pleading for the freedom of God's children. This is it. This is what we're talking about today. Paul, the perplexed pastor, is pleading for the freedom of God's children. So first, let's, let's talk about the first half of this, Paul, 
the perplexed pastor. We should not forget that Paul is a pastor. Paul is a missionary. Paul is an apostle. Paul is lots of things, but he is not less than a pastor. And so here we are. He says in verse 20, I am perplexed about you. You see, Paul, he's continuing to teach the Galatian Christians that their new faith in Jesus gives them a new status, and it's their faith plus nothing that gives them their identity. And in this passage, we see one of many places in Paul's letters where he shows us that passionate pastoring is undergirded by thick theology. Some of us want to, we want to divorce these two things, that that theology and on-the-ground pastoring uh, are... Two separate things, but in fact, Paul, all over the place and in Galatians and even in this passage, shows us that in order to be a pastor, to be a pastor who cares and shepherds the flock, you must pay attention to thick theology. You must know the story. If you were to prick Paul, he would bleed not just Bible verses, but the whole Bible story. He's wrapped up in all that God is doing and he brings it all to bear with these people. And so in verse 20, because Paul is so familiar with the scriptures, so familiar with the biblical text, he's perplexed that they aren't seeing things as he taught them. And so throughout the letter, we've seen that false teachers were telling the Galatians that although they had believed in Jesus, they needed to become Jewish and follow the Mosaic law to be considered truly a part of God's people. And if we look in verses 8 through 10 with me, we we can sum up this section in this way. Paul simply says, listen, I've said it before, and he's actually going to say it again in different ways. Galatians is actually a very repetitive letter. In verses 8 through 10, he teaches them that if they, as Gentile Christians, right, those who used to be pagans, they're now Christians, if they turn to the law of Moses for any of their standing before God, they might as well turn back to the various religions they followed before. Now, this is review, actually, but he says it in another striking way. In verse 3, look at this. He says that in the same way, we also, talking about Jews with the Mosaic Law, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then if you look down in verse 9, he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Now, there's like, I don't know, books and books and books and articles spilled over what are the elementary principles of the world. And I think that it's relatively clear, but rather than getting into the specifics, just know this, what Paul has been teaching and what he teaches here. This is, this is crazy to me. He's telling them, he's telling these Galatian Christians, you think that turning to the law will make you more a part of the people of God, turning to the Mosaic law. Paul is saying, that is so wrong that let me tell you this, it would be equally as wrong if you turn back to your pagan religions. If you turn to the law of Moses for your salvation, that is equally as bad as you just forsaking Jesus altogether and going back and living in your pagan religions. Right, he's comparing both. The Mosaic law and these pagan religions for salvation are both enslaving. And what's fascinating to me is that legalistic superstition and demonic domination are closely linked. 
Legalistic superstition and demonic domination are closely linked. Why? Because they both enslave. The place we are in redemptive history, right, to go back to the elementary principles, even if it's the law of Moses, to go back to that is like a PhD going back to learn his ABCs in kindergarten. It makes no sense. It'd be like, uh, he's so perplexed because of this. It would be like um, uh, leaving an addiction to cigarettes for chewing tobacco. Like it's better. No, it's, the, it's a different form of the exact same thing. So he's saying, listen, yes, you were enslaved to these pagan religions, but if you turn to the law of Moses for salvation, it's like going from cigarettes to tobacco. It will kill you the same. It's just a different form. And so this is the type of pastor that you want. You see, pastors work with you for your joy and freedom in Jesus. Good pastors and Christian leaders don't seek to put a burden on you. We seek to pursue with you Jesus for your joy. You see, good pastors don't seek to form themselves in you. They seek to see Jesus formed in you. I'm getting all of this from 16 through 20. Verse 17, they, these false teachers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. What is he saying? What he's saying is they're creating this holy huddle. They're creating this club of people who are more, they're, they're more superior to you because they've supplemented the gospel. And then when they create this holy huddle and they say, this is how you ought to want to be, it makes all the Gentiles want to be like them, to make much of them. You see, and by any time we create some holy huddle in our tribe or otherwise, what we're really doing oftentimes is wanting to be made much of by those who want to be in our tribe. And Paul won't have it. Paul, as a good pastor, seeks to form Christ in them. As John Calvin said, if ministers wish to be something, let them labor to form Christ, not themselves, in their hearers. You see, we, we all have something being formed in us, all of us. And nobody gets to opt out of being formed in something. And so my job as a pastor is to cultivate by the Spirit Christ in you, the hope of glory. But you see, all of us come in to here and we come into everything not being unformed, but being malformed. And for Christ to be formed in us, we have to be conformed to his image, which is really a project of being reformed. It's a project of having Christ come in us and we die to our old selves increasingly and become more like him. And Paul will get to that in chapter five. Remember, the fruit of the spirit are coming. The gospel-shaped life teaching is coming in Galatians but right now, Paul wants to make sure we know that Christ is to be formed in us. And, and I want to take, I wanted to take a whole week uh, on this idea of Christ being formed in us, and we'll have to come back to it. But for this morning, because I know Galatians 5 is coming, uh, I will simply ask the question, who is being formed in you? 
What is being formed in you? What are you becoming like? Who are you becoming like? I heard a pastor one time say uh, when he was in high school, uh, Bob Dylan was being formed in him. And it made me think, I, I made me think to myself, man, who, in high school, Dave Matthews Band was being formed in me. And what I mean by that is I was a serious fan. I've been to over a dozen concerts. Right? I mean, I just went around with friends and went to these concerts, don't judge me. And I loved the Dave Matthews Band and I was, uh, I wanted to be a part of the Dave Matthews Band, right? But in a sense, what does it mean it was being formed in me? It was affecting me, it was shaping me, everything about it was. See, the point is, whatever you give yourself to pursue will be formed in you. It can be something that you never would have imagined. It can be something that is so silent, so off the beaten path, so under your radar, and it's actually ruling your life. Of course it could be money. But if you've been in the church at all, money's talked about a lot, and it's power when you love it. There's nothing wrong with money, but when you love it, there's power. And so that's the key. You love lots of things. So what do you love more than Jesus? That's being formed in you right now. And there is a battle that the Spirit is waging in you. And you and I get the opportunity, and I, as a pastor and us leaders, get to come alongside you and help cultivate Christ being formed in you. And so here's some questions. Are you becoming more kind and compassionate like the Lord Jesus or more hardened and cynical like the spirit of the age? Which one's being formed in you? Kindness, compassion, or hardness and cynicism? Are you becoming more present and in the moment like Jesus was with the woman at the well or with those children who came to him when he called them? Or are you becoming more distracted by your phone and distracted by work and by life, but not present? And you see, ultimately what happens is that you lose those people in front of you. What if Jesus would have been looking over the shoulder of the woman at the well instead of in her face? What would have happened if Jesus would have called those children to himself and said, no, let them come to me, and then put them on his lap, pat them on the back, and be looking for someone else more powerful that he really wanted to be talking to, someone that he could benefit from, but not these small children? You see, when Christ is being formed in us, we live in an upside-down kingdom, and we start to love new things and different things, not notoriety or something else. So Paul, the pastor, is perplexed that they would trade one form of slavery for another form of slavery. And he's saying, listen, they're, they're just taking you and they're talking sweet to you and they're making much of you only so that you'll make much of them and they can enslave you over here so you can be their slaves instead of someone else's slaves. But they don't want to free you. And Paul's saying, I want to free you. And the only way you can be freed is for Christ to be formed in you. You see, that's the connection. How will Paul, the perplexed pastor, plead with them to become God's free children, to live into that? Well, he's going to seek for Christ to be formed in them. More on that in the coming weeks. And that leads us to the second half. Paul's not only a perplexed pastor, but he's pleading for the freedom of God's children. So we're gonna spend the next few minutes on 
verses 4 through 7. And so before we spend that time, though, I love it. I saw so many heads go down. Ha, <laughs> tricked you. Let's briefly look at 1 through 3, okay? So if you look at 1 through 3, this can be interesting, right? I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And then he says in the same way also. I'm still not exactly sure how it's in the exact same way, but uh, I think I know uh, enough not to make a fool out of myself here. So apparently the Gentiles were mesmerized by the law, the law of Moses, okay? So as Paul's been trying to say, listen, I've been living with this law for a long time. I've been walking with Jesus for 14 years now. Let me tell you, the law for salvation is not what you think it is. Let me tell you what it's like. This is what it's like. Here's an illustration of how it functions. So in Paul's day, it was customary for a wealthy man to hand his heir over to the care of guardians, okay? So it'd be like if you have an inheritance, but you don't get it to a certain age because it's set, right? So now, in our day and age, an attorney might do that, but back in Paul's day, this guardian would, would sort of live with you. It reminds me of, uh, my girls just watched The Lion King recently. There's that bird, right? I forget his name, but don't say it. No, I'm just kidding. What is it? Zazu, thank you. See, Zazu. So Zazu is this bird, and in one of the first songs that Simba sings, you have this going back and forth about how Simba wants to be king now, and Zazu says, no, it's not time yet. So it's this sort of relationship where the father knows what's best for the son or for the child, and throughout the childhood, the eldest son, who would have been the heir, knew he would inherit the father's estate, but he didn't own it yet. Okay, so Lord of all, or Lord of everything, owner of everything, means that the Father's land belongs to him, the Son, by title, but not yet by actual possession. So in the meantime, the heir had about as much liberty as a common slave. That's about how much liberty the heir had, even though everything was his. Okay, so he had no legal or property rights, just like a slave did not have legal or property rights. And his guardian kept him under discipline, right? He was told when to wake up, when to go to school, what to wear, how to behave, and when to go to bed. And he also probably had a trustee to manage his property and his wealth, especially if his father was deceased. Until he came of age, until he came of age. And look at this beautiful, beautiful phrase in verse four. But when the fullness of time had come. You see, imagine one of these slaves, or one of these heirs who was like a slave, to finally come of age, and then about three weeks later say, you know what, I like being a slave better. Can that guardian guy come back and tell me how to live my life? That would be insane. He'd been waiting his whole life to be freed from this guardian, to inherit what was his. And Paul is saying is that the law was like that. The law was like a guardian leading God's people to a certain place until the fullness of time would come. And guess what the inheritance is now that you and I experience? The Spirit. Now we've received adoption as sons, which we're gonna see in a minute, and then he sent the Spirit of his Son to dwell in us, right? We, we know the prophecies that God's Spirit would come and dwell with his people. As, in, as first fruits of what is to come. And so now, with that in mind, let's go to four through seven. 
Beautiful statement. When the fullness of time had come. You see, Paul is saying those who are in Christ are like those sons who have come of age. We've received adoption as sons who get the spirit of the son. And uh, once Christ had gained our freedom, right, what does it say here? He gathered us into the family. God sent forth his son, verse four, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. But not just that, not just to redeem you and set you free, right? Like, okay, now you can live how you want. You're free to go. You're no longer a slave. No, to redeem those so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. So you've been set free so you can be invited into the family. It's not just set free, go fend for yourself. It's set free and come eat at our table. Set free and come be a part of our family, which means when you're a part of that family, you receive the inheritance. Let's keep reading. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. There it is. We might receive adoption as sons, children. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is Christianity. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, how to be changed, how to have Christ formed in you, this will be one of the places that you go for the rest of your life and meditate on this. We never graduate past this. You see, as John Stott said, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship and he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. This, co- this comes through the affectionate and confidential intimacy of our access now to God in prayer in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude and using the language not of slaves but of sons. You see, you're, you're not a slave, right? Some of us, we think that in Jesus we're forgiven slaves right? We think that we're forgiven slaves that God lets eat the scraps of his table. At least that's how we live our lives most of the time. But in Jesus, we are adopted children, and so we're not forgiven slaves. We are adopted, full-fledged heirs with Jesus. You see, you're, you're not a slave. He doesn't own you like a slave. God does not own you like a slave. He loves you as his child. God does not need your obedience. Why why do we think that? He doesn't need our obedience or our performance to make himself feel more worthy or valuable, right? Some of us were parented like that though, weren't we? Some of us were parented like our parents needed us to perform for their own value and they used us to prop themselves up and some of us parent like that. Some of us parent like that most of the time. Some of us, parent like that in moments, right? Where we basically look at our children as though they will give us validation. That is the best way to destroy your children, to, for me to destroy my children and to skew their understanding of who God is and how God is their father. You see, with God, the father is not needy. 
right? This relationship is not toxic. There are no mixed motives. He's not quick-tempered. They're simply pure, sacrificial, unadulterated love for his children. A love that we cannot experience anywhere else except in the arms of the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And that's a gift we have to cry out now, Abba, Father. Slaves don't cry out, slaves beg. Slaves grovel. They don't cry out, but children cry out. Right, you know if you're a parent or if you're an older brother or sister, right, and, and you're, you're acting like a parent, you know you could, be, you could be in a crowd, you could be at a playground, it could be after church here, and you hear a cry out of all the cacophony of noise, and you know which one's yours. You know it. You hear a thousand kids cry, mommy, daddy, whoever, and you hear it, and something in your mind, in your heart, as soon as you hear it, you in a conversation, and boom, you know, and you're, you're looking, you're finding. That's how our Father loves us. Slaves cry out, not like children, but as beggars. You see, this word cry out communicates a crying that is filled with intense feeling. Right? Romans 8, 15 and 16, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Yet we have this tendency to live as though we are slaves every day. But God does not make us forgiven slaves. He makes us beloved children. And because you are children in Jesus. You see, the inheritance that we get is gifted to sons and daughters. It's not earned by slaves. Let's stop living our lives as though we can earn God's favor as slaves and instead turn in Jesus and say, by faith, I receive adoption. By faith, I look to Christ, and now the inheritance is mine. It's not because of anything I've done or ever could do or ever will do in the future. And lastly, I want us to go to verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. I love that. This is one of the verses that Surprisingly, it comes to my mind frequently when I think about relationships, when I think about knowing people, when I think about knowing God. Yes, I know God, but why have I come to know God and who have I come to know God as? So in this case, God the Father, I know as Father because I've been adopted through the Son and the Spirit is given to me and now I experience this adoption. I experience this status in prayer as I cry out. But imagine with me for a second a tiny baby girl living in an orphanage, a little infant, newborn. And imagine a man comes for a visit and he sees the baby lying in the crib. And he loves her so much, not because of anything she's done, but he chooses to love her. And he, and he adopts her into his family. And she grows up to call the man father because he's the only father she's ever known. But why does she know him as father? She knows him as father only because he first knew her as his daughter. It's 
the only reason she knows him as father. He first looked at her and said, you are my daughter. You see, this is the love of God. This is the love that God has for all his sons and daughters in Christ. Anyone who receives such grace, such undeserved favor, could never go back to the orphanage. Never. Would we wake up one day, find out, oh, we're adopted. I think I'll go back to the orphanage. No, it would fill us with this new overwhelming gratitude for the father who adopted us, who came and, and, and pulled us out of that place and drew us to himself and made us his own, yes, legally as a status, but who loved us faithfully over time and provided for us and sang to us at night, sang over us that we could sleep, who comforted us in our nightmares, who came to us and provided a safe place in our distress, who, who patiently listened, who patiently came to us and was not quick to anger, who was so secure that when we failed, he wasn't just wringing his hands saying, maybe I'll take her back. Maybe I picked the wrong one. No. You see, before Paul turns to the gospel-shaped life, he, he stops and he says, don't go back to the orphanage. Don't go back to the elementary principles. The love of God in Jesus Christ is what everything is about. Everything was building to this point when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. Let's pray. Father, we come to you saying Father a lot, and yet oftentimes we don't view you as Father. We view you as slave master. We're grateful that you adopted us as your children. You've given us a new status, a new name, and in our baptism, you put the name of Father, Son, and Spirit on us. We now are invited. We're now brought into that family to commune with you. And Jesus, you came willingly and you lived the life that we were to live and you died the death that we should have died and now you have set us free. I ask for every single person here that right now in, in this response and as we come to the, to the table, that you would with surgical precision show us where we live as orphans again. Show us where we most doubt your love for us, Father. And Holy Spirit, help us kill it by your word. Help us speak truth and be set free. It's in Jesus' name we pray.